Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, as we said last week, is in a section of three chapters that kind of go together where, where Paul is answering some rhetorical questions. Now, we've had all of these weeks, 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 weeks of one through eight of all this news about the justification that God does, that we need Christ and we need him because if we are justified through Christ and Christ only. And then he kind of gets to these three where he's answering the rhetorical questions. Well, if God is the one that does all the saving, then wait. Let's answer some of these difficult questions. And so last week we had the, wait, if God called the nation of Israel to be his chosen people, then why is it that not every Jewish person is a believer in Jesus Christ? Wait, if, if God is the one who is doing the saving, then why is not everyone saved? And so we see that first part, and we talk about the sovereignty of, of God in salvation all the way through that chapter and we saw things like God's chosen people are children of the promise, not by genealogy, but by governing. I'm trying to catch you up in case, because all three of these chapters go together. So it's not about genealogy, it was about governing. Not everyone who says they are Israel have submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. So they, they're, not, they're not governed by God. And so he goes on to explain that. And then he says God's chosen people are children of the promise, not by manipulation, but by miracle. And so he, he goes in and uses some Old Testament illustrations, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was a son born from a slave woman, out of manipulation, out of the flesh. We are all born out of the flesh. We're all born in slavery as we enter this world under the slavery of sin because of Adam. But there are children that are born of the miracle, born of the promise, born of the spirit. This is why Jesus says that you must be born again in John chapter 3 while talking to Nicodemus that these are the ones who are the children of God. God's chosen people are children of the promise, not by performance, but by God's purpose. He then uses the illustration of Jacob and Esau, that before either one of them ever did anything good or bad that God had chosen, his lineage would go through Jacob and not Esau. And so then it brings us to the, wait, this, if God's doing all the choosing, if God's doing the electing, then this, this isn't fair. And I said, you don't want what's fair. You want mercy. And so salvation is not a matter of merit. It's a matter of mercy. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. As we look at this idea of salvation from God's sovereignty, from the, that side of the coin, we see that it is God who decides when and where and how he will show mercy. It is God who is doing this, and he's doing it for his glory. And as we ended with Tim Keller's uh, quote on this, he says, for the biggest question is, if God could save everyone, why doesn't he? And here Paul seems to say that God's chosen course to save some and leave others will in the end be more fit to show forth God's glory than any other scheme we can imagine. To think that all of creation is for the glory of God. That you and I, we were born for a sole purpose to glorify God. And everything that is said, everything that is done is for his purpose and for his glory. And so we, though we may not understand, though we may have questions, though we may say, wait, wait, what? We are all longing for God to be glorified. Amen. I'm going to read chapter 10 with you, read in its entirety, and then we'll begin to work our way through what it looks like for God's salvation 
and man's responsibility. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, you who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it brings clarity and it brings truth. It brings light to our path. And we thank you for the, the available promise of salvation by mercy. That all who would confess you as Lord and bow their knee before you as Lord of their life would find salvation. Father, I pray that you prompt hearts today to bow a knee and surrendering to you. Father, I thank you for the open invitation to find salvation, that those who have heard the word of God that we've just proclaimed would be able to submit to it. Draw us to that point in our life where we will bow our knee before you. Father, we pray for those who have not heard. We grieve for those who have not heard the good news. Father, I ask that you place within us a burden so strong that we cannot remain silent in the comfort of our Christianity. But God, that you would send us out to be a voice of the good news for those who need to hear so that they can believe. Father, I pray over this congregation right now that you would raise up 
missionaries from these pews that they would not be able to sit here any longer, but they would go. Father, I pray that you would call them to nations. You would call them to people. You would call them to places where they could proclaim your truth. Father, use us for your glory and for your kingdom. And Father, we thank you for the salvation of those who have yet to hear that will hear your word. In Christ's name, amen. I've already started crying. Here we go. <laughs> I was uh, trying to encourage my daughter this week before a soccer game. And so I sent her a little video. And it was from a Little League coach. And the Little League coach, he had all of his Little League players around there. And he was sitting there talking to them. And he said, now, guys, I want you all to know something. There are two types of people in this world. There are winners and there are losers. And every time we walk on that field... We want to be winners. And I don't, he said, and if your dad has told you that winning and losing doesn't matter and that as long as you have fun, that's all that matters, then I hate to break it to you, but your dad's a loser. <laughs> and I just thought that would cheer her on, and it did. They won the game. <laughs> and uh, uh, I say that to tell you that there are two types of people in this world, and it's not winners and losers. It's those who have receive the word of God and those who have not. There is no distinction between Jew or Greek is what we just read. The only distinction that has any eternal value is those who have heard the word of God and responded and those who have not. And so the responsibility lies on the church. Wait, if God is the one who saves, then why do we need missions and evangelism? Wait, if Christians believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him, then why don't we evangelize more often? Wait, if people need to hear the gospel to be saved, then why are there so many people not hearing it today? Wait, how is it fair for God to send someone to hell who has never even heard or been given the opportunity to respond? What isn't fair is that there are so many believers who know the good news of Jesus Christ and yet they never share it. Wait, if the recipients of the gospel are the ones who are responsible to relay the gospel, then why are so many believers not sharing that gospel? As J.D. Greer said, with the privilege of hearing the gospel comes the responsibility of spreading the gospel. If you are here today, or if you are listening today, you have received the gospel, you know the gospel, and you're about to hear the gospel because we just read the gospel, and now we're going to work through the gospel, you have a responsibility. And our responsibility, number one, is to have a desire and prayer for the lost to be saved. It starts so simple, with a desire and a prayer. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. As we talk about the sovereignty of God and as it depends upon salvation, and then we look at the man's responsibility as it plays out in salvation, we get this real brief snapshot that our prayers play a key role in the salvation of others. Do you ever think about that, that your prayer life plays a role in the salvation of other people? 
This is why Luke 10 Verse 2 says, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Our prayers have power behind them because God is longing for people to come to a saving knowledge of him. And if we will earnestly pray not only for their salvation, but also pray for God to send out workers into the harvest, that plays a key role in the salvation of those who desperately need to hear Because if we're not willing to pray for them, are we really willing to talk to them? And for us to begin to care, we have to stop seeing unbelievers as unworthy. We have to stop elevating ourselves as if we have deserved mercy and they do not deserve mercy. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The translation of this, Paul is basically saying, my thinking towards you is good. As you look at the world, and as you look at how rampant sin is, if you look at the the lives of the people that you come in contact with, and you you look at all of the things that are so available for us to see, let me ask you, are your thoughts towards those people good? Church, we have got to have a compassion that is given to us by Jesus Christ for those who are lost. We cannot look down our noses at people as if they don't deserve mercy, and we do. Because none of us deserve to be saved. If we look at unbelievers with contempt and not compassion, we we will not earnestly pray for their salvation. Nor will we be prompted by the Spirit to proclaim to them the ways of salvation. And if you do feel prompted by the Spirit, you will quickly, shh, Spirit, I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to put myself in that situation. I don't want to go to that place. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul understood their zeal. Paul understood that as it referred to Israel and the the Jews, that they had misguided efforts in their interpretation of the law, that they believed that they could be good enough to earn salvation. And this is the default level for every person who wants to be saved is works-based righteousness. It's the default that I can be good enough or I can get rid of enough in order for God to be approving of me. And this is not it. Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Paul would say in Philippians 3, 4 through 10, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul gets to is, listen, I did it all. I understand the zeal. I understand their misguided efforts. And it ends up empty. 
There is no righteousness within ourselves that can save us. We need, as, as Martin Luther said, an alien righteousness and, uh, and righteousness that's outside of ourselves that is granted to us and is only granted to us by faith. It's not by our works. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you come to a point of faith and not a point of religion, you will not enter. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In Martin Luther's commentary, he did say this, this is something monstrous. It constitutes the most telling single opposition to faith. For as if they could not possibly be mistaken, they stay put on their own good intention with, under, with unyielding obstinacy and they stake their salvation on the fact that they are engaged in religious pursuits with a divine zeal. Religion keeps people from coming to Jesus because they believe, you know what, what I'm doing is right. And I can tell you I'm doing what's right because I'm doing it better than other people. The scriptures characterize such people as being of a twisted and bent heart and of a corrupt mind. Even though they are not corrupt in the flesh or in corporal vices, yet they are spiritually corrupt insofar as they obstinately persist in their own opinion and in their own way in pursuing the spiritual good. There are people that Paul has a heart for that are lost and they're lost not because of a lack of zeal for what is right, but they're lost because of a lack of understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And listen, there are people today who are lost in religion who do not know Jesus Christ. And they are obstinate, believing that what they are doing is right because they are following a list of rules, a list of do's, and a list of don'ts that has been passed down to them from generation to generation, that this is what Christianity looks like. And Paul is saying, listen, it's not about the rules. It's about surrendering your life to Jesus Christ and having a faith in his righteousness that is far exceeding anything you could ever do on your own. So our responsibility is to have a desire and a prayer for them. And secondly, our responsibility is to declare the good news to those who need to be saved. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a promise. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is great news. It is not about ascending or descending. It's not about do's and it's not about don'ts. It's not about your righteousness. It is about coming to a point in your life where you confess Jesus Christ is Lord and you surrender everything to him because he is worthy. That is salvation and it is available right now. It is in your heart and it is near you. You don't have to go anywhere for it. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to be a better person to get it. You simply need to confess and believe 
What a remarkable gift that salvation is for those that he has mercy upon. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. James refers to this in his epistle as well. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. If you want to live by the letter of the law, then you will die by the letter of the law. If you want to make your faith about law-keeping and holding everyone else's faith to the standard of your law-keeping, you better not fail at one part of it. Am I right? Paul's deep concern, number one, for the Jews, for the lost Jews, is that anyone who pursues salvation by trying to keep the law will be judged on the basis of that effort. You will be judged based on your own level of being able to keep the law. Second, Paul's deep concern for the lost Jew is that it is impossible to keep the whole law. You're setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up to be judged by others. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Only Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. He is the standard. So third, Paul's deep concern for the lost Jew is that if their faith is in works righteousness rather than an alien righteousness that is outside of themselves, then failure is inevitable and it will result in eternal damnation. Listen, if you're going to put your faith on the line by how good you are or what you stop doing or how, how well you follow rules, you're headed down the wrong path of eternity. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Man's responsibility is not religious works of ascending to spiritual levels of achievement, nor is it religiously descending into spiritual levels of annihilating things from your life. And unfortunately, this is not the good news, but this is the news that a lot of Christians like to teach. Oh, you want to be a good Christian? Then you need to do these things. Oh, you want to be a good Christian? You better start taking away these things. Spiritual levels of achievement. Look at what I've done, God. Look at all the work that I put into serving you, going door to door, earning my way up the ladder of religious achievement and acceptance. Look at what I do. Look at how devoted I am. Look at how I never miss a quiet time. Look at how committed I am to the ministries. And look at how many Bible studies I've got myself in. Look at what I am achieving. Spiritual levels of annihilation. Look at what I've given up. Look, I don't do this. I don't do that. I've given up food. I've given up drink. I've given up TV. I've given up internet. I've given up social media. I've given up you fill in the blank. Look, I've given up all of this worldly pleasure. I've given it all up. And basically, I'm a monk and I live in a monastery. And I'm going to wear just a burlap sack for the rest of my life. Look at what I've done for you, God. When you begin to believe that your faith is about levels of achievement or levels of annihilation, you begin to ask yourself the question, what must I do or what must I stop stop doing to be accepted by God? And that is the wrong question. It's not what you do that saves you, but it's what Christ has done for you that saves you. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the message of the, of the gospel. This is the good news that we declare to those who need to hear it. 
Not that you need to clean up your life. Not that you need to do this and don't do this. We declare that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We declare that God has done it all. He has sent Christ. Christ has died for us and our sins. God has raised him from the dead and all we must do is believe in this word. The fact is, this word is near you right now. It means you don't have to go somewhere. You don't have to go through difficulties. You don't have to do the impossible process of ascending or descending to find Christ and to be saved. Rather, you can believe in him right now at this very moment, and you will be saved. That is the promise. Right now, you can be saved if you will, by faith, accept Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection in your place. If you will, by faith, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, right now you can be saved. It is not a repeat after me prayer. It is a simple, I'm bowing my knee and I'm saying that you're Lord of my life. And I want to be saved right now. And maybe some of you need to, for the very first time, realize that it's not about religion. It's about bowing your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to do anything but believe in what Christ has done for you on your behalf and confess him as Lord. Confess. It means to express openly one's allegiance, identification, faith, confidence, and trust. This is a legal or judicial term. The word indicates a binding and public declaration which settles a relationship with legal force. It is a public profession of faith. It is to confess that I am no longer this, but I am connected to Jesus Christ. And that's why baptism is the most beautiful picture of a person's change from death into life. I have been fully immersed with Jesus Christ and I'm risen to newness of life. It is a public declaration as Jesus as Lord. The confession that Jesus is Lord meant the acknowledgement that Jesus shares the same, the name And the nature, the holiness, the authority, power, majesty, and eternity of the one and only true God, my C.E.B. Cranfield. For the Jew, this was a remarkable statement. For the Jew to say that Jesus was on the same level as, as God was the most impossible thing for them to say. But this is how we are saved, that we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, And if you do not confess Jesus as Lord of all, then you have not surrendered to him as Lord at all. Lordship issue is that many have tried to have a reservation in their confession of Jesus as Lord. They've come, but they've come with not open hands, but closed hands. And they want Jesus to be Lord of certain areas of their life so that it brings salvation, but they don't want Jesus to be Lord of all areas of their life, so they hold on. And if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, we believe everything which the Lord Jesus has taught, but we must go a step further and trust him. It is not even enough to believe in him as being the son of God and the anointed of the Lord. But we must believe on him. 
The faith that saves is not believing certain truths or even believing that Jesus is a savior, but it is resting on him, depending on him, lying with all of your weight on Christ as the foundation of your hope, believing that he can save you, believe that he will save you. At any rate, leave the whole matter of your salvation with him in unquestioning confidence, depending upon him without fear as to your present or your eternal salvation. This is the faith which saves the soul. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls. Every sinner. Everyone. You ever think someone's too far from God to be saved? You ever think they're too, too far gone? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone. No matter what they've done, no matter who they are, God is ready to open the door. As Revelation 3.20 said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The thing about the door is, and I heard another pastor say this, is I can tell you, I can tell you he's knocking. I can read to you that he's knocking. I can describe to you what a knocking sounds like, but I cannot make you hear the knocking. My responsibility is to tell you he's knocking. Church, your responsibility is to go to people and tell them he's knocking. He's longing for you to open the door. Do not turn a deaf ear to the conviction of sin, but open the door and let Jesus Christ into your heart. Our third responsibility, our responsibility is to be dedicated to take the good news to the lost. We have to be dedicated. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing. There's a responsibility to take the word of Christ to people so that they can hear the word of Christ because faith comes through hearing the word of Christ and that's how belief comes. The Rowry Study Bible says this, though God's election of his people is of his own free choice and not based on human merit, the elect are not saved without believing the message that is preached by those who are sent. What a responsibility it is on the church who has the gospel. 
that we, by God's divine plan, by his sovereign plan, has decided to make the church his instruments by which the word of God is spread for the salvation of those who would believe. We have the responsibility to then, by our mouths, share the word of God so that people can hear the word of God and then believe the word of God and find salvation. God's plan of salvation is sovereignly accomplished both by his election and the responsibility given to his elect. Our theological understanding of election should not eliminate evangelism, but rather expand our responsibility for evangelism. You were chosen to go. You were chosen to be a voice. You were chosen to share the good news of the gospel so that those who would hear it would believe and find salvation. What a remarkable call that has been placed on our lives. Evangelism is the responsibility given to the church, his elect. The gospel you received is on its way to someone else right now. Don't sit on it. Don't be silent. Salvation is delivered by the word of God and is shared by the word of our mouths. Share the word of God. Share it with those who are around you those who need to hear it because the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Carl F.H. Henry. Right now, there's roughly 4.5 billion people living today that do not know Christ. The Joshua Project that does research estimates that about half of those are completely unreached. That means that if things stand the way they are right now, that they have no real chance of hearing the gospel before they die. If you were to line these people up five across, they said they would circle the globe five times. That's how many people that is. And that's not a statistic. That's a person just like you who has never heard the good news of the gospel. There are people just like you and just like me that unless they hear the gospel and respond will live an eternity separated from God. And God has chosen his church to be the mouthpiece. David Platt said, many professing Christians have embraced the universalistic idea that religion is merely a matter of preference or opinion and that in the end all religions are fundamentally the same. People do not have to trust in Christ in order to know God or go to heaven. Therefore, there is no need to encourage someone else to embrace the truth of Christianity. On the other hand, while some professing Christians have rejected universalism, because not everyone goes to heaven based on Scripture, they have rejected it intellectually. Practically, they may end up leading universalistic lives. They claim Christ is necessary for salvation, yet... They live with their Christianity in silence, as if people around them in the world will indeed be okay in the end without Christ. You may not believe in universalism intellectually, but unfortunately, practically, we live as if everything's going to be okay. But as Romans 3, 9 through 12 said, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Wow. It isn't that Israel hasn't heard the good news. It's that they have disobediently rejected it. Many today live with the spiritual privilege of knowing the gospel, being raised in Christian homes, attending Christian churches, having heard the good news their entire lives, but have rejected it with disobedience. John MacArthur says, true faith is verified in obedience. Obedient faith proves itself true, whereas disobedient faith proves itself false. It's for having true faith, that is, obedient faith, that Paul goes on to command the Roman believers. Together, faith and obedience manifest the inseparable two sides of the coin of salvation, which Paul here calls the obedience of faith. Let me ask you, will you be obedient to the call that God has placed on your life? Will you be obedient? Stephen Cole says he continually reaches out towards sinners whom he loves, but they reject him with disobedient, hardened hearts. Unbelief is seldom, if ever, an intellectual problem. Rather, unbelief almost always stems from a disobedient, hardened heart that loves sin more than it loves God. Thus, those who reject the gospel cannot blame God for not choosing them. They are fully responsible for their own rejection from God. Today, we have the opportunity to be a voice to those who are perishing. Today, you have an opportunity that if you've never bowed your knee and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, you may have been doing a lot of good things, being very religious, trying to ascend or trying to descend, but if today is the day where you hear the knock, will you bow your knee Will you confess Jesus Christ as Lord of your life and find eternal rest? Because Jesus has done it for you. Church, will you take the call of obedience seriously that he has placed on your life to be a voice those who desperately need to hear? He's sending you out today.